Welcome to World Wide Waste, a podcast about how digital is killing the planet and what to do about it. In this session, I'm chatting with Liam Nugent, who has been leading teams that design and build software for over 15 years. His interests include earth experience, design, web standards and accessibility. He recently released Lanark, a font based on the distinctive type of Scottish polymath Alistair Gray. He lives in Glasgow with his wife and son. I started by asking Liam if he could remember the most wasteful thing he had been asked to do as a digital agency. This particular form had seven yes-no questions on it. And the client said, so, you know, I'm not really sure, you know, how many routes will that open up to the user? If there's how many potential permutations of this form could there be? Um, I'm going to have to get you to get a designer to draw them all out. And I was like, well, no, we don't really. It's okay, you know, a wee bit of maths. I'm pretty sure it's going to be like two to the power seven. Quick calculation. I mean, it'll be 128. That's that's pretty straightforward. No, no, it can't be as many as that. And I said, well, no, I think it is. But no, no, really, I insist. I'm not sure. I want to see how it's going to look with all these, you know, form inputs drawn out. You're kind of having the conversation and eventually, you know, for right or for wrong, I capitulated. So we had a designer create in Photoshop 128 Photoshop files of a form with gradients and images in the background and, you know, all sorts of jazzy design rubbish added around it. And then drew out what should have been basically maybe at the most a 5 to 10 megabyte Photoshop file became 128 Photoshop files, which then had to be kind of wrapped up and zipped up and sent across we we transfer or whatever to this client. In terms of waste, that's the one that jumps out. Just when you look back and think, just for the sake of an ego, I suppose, and kind of working with someone, that all that energy just gets wasted to create the file. All the time gets wasted from someone sitting there for hours copying and pasting and moving one item and then going on to the next one. So that really kind of, as I say, jumped out as one of the top examples of just in the moment, wasted time, effort, energy. And then as we get more into thinking about the impact that this stuff has on the world around us, yeah, it still it still rankles. <laughs> and let's say, because uh, I've been thinking about digital as an accelerant of waste and wasteful behaviour, I wonder would that have happened if we didn't have Photoshop, if we didn't have computers, if this was, you know, more a, a, an analogue world, would, and it's hard to, I suppose, totally predict that, but if you had a physical drafts person or designer, you would have kind of said, let's do the math. If we can't physically do 128 forms. It would It would seem very nonsensical. I often think that the ease of digital and, and the ease of essentially creating a copy and then modifying that copy means that we create vast numbers of copies. And there's the sense of we create before we think. And that seems to be a very good example of the way digital pushes us towards the actual creative act rather than the the thoughtful calculating or mathematical. Like a, you look at your mathematics there, that was a much more energy efficient way of basically 
approaching that problem by applying a formula, but instead we went to essentially a manual process of of re- reproducing the form 128 times. Yeah, exactly that. And, you know, my strong suspicion was that when the work was eventually done and, you know, it was sent and it arrived, you know, my strong suspicion is that the, the client opened it to check that it had been done because that is what they had paid for and they never looked at it again. And it, for all I know, for all I know, it's still on their hard drive. So, so let's just look at the... Uh, so that file, a single file was probably four megabyte. Yeah, and then, so we've got 128 of them. So uh, basically, we've got essentially 500 megabyte. So we went from four megabyte to half a gigabyte. And as you said, and certainly it would be my experience as well, a lot of this stuff gets created and it never gets used. And that supports a kind of the data that we're seeing coming out that that shows that 90% of data is never accessed three months after it's created. So you're half gigabyte of 128 forms. And I mean, there is no, I mean, that would, that would fry your brain going through those 128. What could you learn by going through them? There's the, there, each one of them would blur into the next one with slight and tiny variation. So it seems like it's another example of digital creating work or creating stuff that is essentially useless. Yes, and, and it was useless because, you know, I'm sure your listeners will know, like the, the Photoshop files that you create are not the actual real thing that needs to be created anyway. So as part of the discussion, you know, I was saying, well, rather than do all that, we could just, if you don't trust the numbers, if you don't trust that that's how many permutations there are and, you know, how we need to think about it, we could quite easily build the form just in raw HTML. You know, it won't look that much, but it'll exist and then you can see it and you can understand all the various permutations. Because to be fair to this human, like they wanted to understand what was happening. Um, so. You know, we suggested that, and you know, the response was, "Yeah, but that will look terrible." And you're like, "Well, okay, it will, but that, but that's not the point." You know, ultimately, that's the thing that's going to get clothes put on it to make it look nice to the people who will really use it. So, like, I always like to push towards, you know, whether it's in work or whatever, just or in discussions, like creating something real. You know, the actual, you know, whether it's a first iteration, um of just the real thing that we're all working towards rather than, you know, creating facsimiles. Making something actually usable rather than a visual artifact help people understand. But what I was just chatting to you before we started to record about this municipality, I know that our council or town council or whatever, that in the last three or four years created uh, something like 300 apps and that pr- practically none of them are being used. Isn't that the flip side of let's create something and, and see that we we seem to lack or have lost or, or, you know, capacities to judge and say, well, this shouldn't be created at all. You know, this, I wonder how do we get mechanisms? Because 
there's loads of data out there about apps that 95% or 90, 95% of apps are never used after after two months or only used once or downloaded and used once and never never used again. And it's great to see the thing in use, but supposing the thing should never have come into, it's never, it's going to be useless uh, to begin with. You know, how do we get around that? Because whole engine of so much digital is creating stuff or buying new tools. I know we're going to talk about tools and stuff like that, that it's so easy to assemble a massive tool set. Like you, I've got some tools for working around the house, but at a, at a certain point you have enough, you have a, you have a hammer and you have a saw and you have, you know, I've probably bought far too many screwdrivers over the years, but, I'm, and particularly from what I've learned in previous years, I, I've decided I'm not going to buy anything. I'm going to use whatever tools I have, unless there's an absolutely overwhelming reason to do it. But it seems like in digital, we don't have those constraints. And, ah, yeah, sure, it'll, it'll just take a, a couple hours to put this together. It'll just, how do we, where where is the balance between, yeah, the, the it would be great to see that in action. And, you know, there's really no reason for this to exist at all. But it takes a certain amount of bravery, though, to say that. You know, if your job is a designer or a programmer, and you know you need to put bread on the table, and someone saying to you, "Do you want to build this?" You know, and we will pay you money. Not everyone is in the position where they can say, "Actually, that doesn't really suit me." You know, I've got, I've got enough going on in my life, or you know, I don't see the value in it, so therefore I'm not going to do it. You know, there's plenty of people out there who, you know, it's just their job; it's not their passion, so they will just do what they're asked. You know, they'll kind of outsource the thinking about it. Yeah. And that's okay, you know, like everyone doesn't have to be, you know, a thought leader, you know. Oh, well, it's not even a, a thought leader. It's, it's like, but if you go in to a doctor and, and, and they say, well, you don't need this test. <laughs> I mean, you expect something from a doctor. Somebody was saying that in the US it's different. They'll send you on every test if you're on an insurance plan, regardless of whether you need the tests or not, because they're so so worried about being sued or whatever. But but in a world, there is no, as you say, as you indicate there, a lot of the time we're, most of us in digital are just little production factories. We were asked, so you write content, write content on, you write code, write code on, create something for me. You're not being paid to say, well, actually, you don't need this. Uh-huh. Or actually, that feature is not useful. So we're in a culture that is totally engineered to create junk. Yeah, no, you're right. And and I do, like, I, I have often felt the tension because from my point of view, like, I'm like, well, I do feel the need to tell you whether it's right or wrong. And I would be confident enough to say it, you know, and had those conversations with people to say, you know, you don't need that, you know, the equivalent of you don't need that test, or I don't think this is a good idea. I'm just mindful of that not everyone, not everyone is. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can totally understand. I mean, you, you, as you say, you got to earn your living. You got, you, you know, you got. So for a lot of people, they know it's wrong. I mean, I've had so many conversations over the years and 
people saying, yeah, we know we're creating junk for people, whether it's a junk marketing campaign or it's a junk, but that's what the client wants. That's what they're paying for. We know they're buying this software and, and it's too complicated. There's there's features on it which they don't really need. But that's if we don't offer them these features which they actually don't need, they won't buy the so it's a catch twenty two or whatever way we want to mm-hmm. deal with it. A client comes to you and demands you create a white elephant and or something that's you know is useless. There's often very little you can do because you, you gotta you gotta pay the bills as as you say. But tell us, you know, a story about how you you built this agency and you know and, and the issues of accumulating the stuff and and the the journey of of trying to rationalize as well and trying to really stand back from from this whirlwind of production or digital production that so many of us uh, spend most of our lives caught up in. Yeah, so the kind of story, I mean, and this is probably a fairly typical story. So I'd worked at various jobs and kind of involved in in digital, ended up in an agency, and they decided, you know, that I thought, it was about, I basically thought I could do this myself. So decided to kind of branch out and go for it. And, you know, a few months later, a kind of outcome that I really hoped was going to happen happened and that a friend, um, Lawrence, he kind of decided that he was kind of feeling the same. So we both started off as a couple of freelancers. We ended up very quickly doing most of our work together, kind of characterised it. So, you know, I could code a bit, but not really a kind of proper programmer. Could do a bit of design, but I'm not really a proper designer, but can solve the problems. And kind of people would phone me up and say, Liam, and this still happens to this day. Phone me up and say, listen, we're just thinking about doing this. You know, you kind of know about digital. What should we do? And then I would either be able to recommend systems that they can use off the shelf and, you know, or would be able to say, no, actually, we're going to have to build something here, whether it be a website or a tool or a campaign or whatever it would be. So basically, you know, I would characterise it as that I got us into trouble and Lawrence got us out again, which was a good partnership and we started off doing it at home or in coffee shops and then we got a bit of space in a, in a building in Glasgow one room and the pair of us decided to kind of just start working in that room together and you know it was the classic thing of it's about 10 years ago you know there are tools there to use it was really easy and there's a real culture of being able to kind of find at the time you could sign up for Google Mail and if it was less than 10 users you got it free forever so we were able to take advantage of that. There was a Dropbox account that gave you so much storage for free and that meant you could share files with people and clients and all that. And that, you know, there was a free tier that suited us. You started kind of this journey of building up, you know, thinking you were being, we started from nothing, you know, you'd say it was a bootstrapped business. So we had no kind of big funds behind us. It was basically like our first job gets us off the ground. And then we just need to keep finding more jobs to start building up a buffer to kind of, Bake it into a business. And the model was, you know, we'll be canny, we'll be really smart about what we use ourselves, we'll be really smart about what we tell clients to use, because we'll have our ear to the ground on, on what's going on. And so we did that. And you know, and then over time we got to the point we were too busy for two of us. So we used other freelancers and then we grew a bit more and it got to the point where 
I was getting too many grey hairs from relying on other freelancers that we thought, let's commit to building our own team. So we kind of formalised it and then we created the company and then we found, you know, our first front-end kind of design engineer. He joined us and, you know, and that story then continued and we eventually we had four four of us in this one room round. We went to Ikea and bought the Ikea boardroom table that just about fit in this one room and we put four chairs around it and we had four laptops and that was all of us on top of each other. And then, you know, when it got to the point where we needed a, a fifth person, we had to go somewhere else. So we then found a bit of a nicer office in a nicer part of town. And, and, you know, it's a kind of typical story, I would think, of, you know, an agency growing. And we started off, one of our big clients was a big betting company. So that was exciting because it was big, you know, and we would go down to London, and, you know, meet them there and come back to Glasgow and do the work. And it was all pretty thrilling. But, you know, after a while, there's frustrations working with these big companies. There's all sorts of kind of staff turnover at their end and, you know, engineering teams who are really kind of had their own priorities. So weren't easy to kind of liaise with. And the kind of nagging doubt that the purpose of all the work you're doing is to try and just extract money from people to bet. But that kind of grates a bit. So again, you know, over time, we were able to kind of find other clients. And as we got a bit better, we got a bit mature, more mature, we were able to kind of pick and choose to a certain degree the kind of work that we wanted to do. Yeah, and that, you know, that carried on until just about 18 months ago, where, you know, for various reasons, you know, all of them good, we decided, Lawrence and I, that we were going to go off and do something else. You know, we'd kind of done it. We had a good time. The way that we could see things were going didn't really suit. Lawrence wanted to go and work, you know, within a product team directly. So we kind of just decided, and I didn't want to kind of carry on and do it myself. So we thought, well, do you know what? There's nothing stopping us here. We can just, we can take our ball home, you know, to use the football analogy. And, you know, at that point then, we our aim had always been to have kind of long-term partnerships with people and work with them for a long time to be someone they could rely on we'd worked in other places before that were a bit fly by night or a bit kind of lazy fair with other people's assets and things so we thought no when we're going to do this you know we're in complete control of this you know there's no pressure telling us that we need to stop now uh, other than what we placed on ourselves so we were able to kind of plan our exit kind of gracefully as it were and then that, you know, made, you know, get in touch with all the clients, let them know what the story was, what was happening, and then giving what we called proper handovers to them all. So if we, we could kind of help direct them to someone else who might take on their project, and then we, we kind of wrote up proper detailed information on kind of the work that we'd done for them, where everything was, all the passwords, all the details for the codes, how someone else could pick up the code and get it working on their machine for the next developer who came along. So we really kind of, we'd, we'd always had real pride in our work and we thought we want this to carry on to the very last. So that was fine, you know, so we, we kind of embarked on that process. And in doing that, it was kind of around the time that I started to hear you talk about waste. And this is where it all basically came into being because it was the proper, you know, this wasn't just like moving house or anything like that. This wasn't just taking all our rubbish from one office to the next and carrying on as we were. This was looking at everything and closing it all down. And then that's where, you know, you get into the kind of thing of, well, how on earth are we going to do this? 
So, you know, the first thing you do is you look at the credit card bill and see all the stuff you're paying for and you kind of go, right, okay, that's the starting point. But basically, once I got everything out, including my password manager, which when I opened up, I realized I had 949 sets of credentials in my password manager for accounts that I had created over 10 years. Now, some of those will be test accounts for websites that we were building or working on. But loads of them were tools and products that I'd kind of added to our armory over the year. And like I say, we'd always kind of been really defensive about adding stuff. We were quite kind of conservative with a small C. We weren't like always on the bleeding edge of everything. We took a bit of convincing as to whether something would be worth taking on and using. But even at that, when you average it out, I was basically signing up for eight accounts or something a month. Yeah. Which... At the time, was just, that's what you do, because there's a better way to, you know, host get repos now, so let's just start using that. But we're not going to go through the pain of migrating the 14 ones we have on that other one to this one as well. So we'll now just keep two running. And at every point, even though you thought you were trying to be smart and you thought you were trying to be efficient, day-to-day pressures would get in the way and you would just accrue all this stuff round about you. So, I mean, in the end, to kind of break it down, you know, there was basically about 20 that we paid money for. So those were the ones that kind of had the most attention on them. And they were for things like Adobe Photoshop, which we ended up mainly using just for font licenses for for websites and apps we'd worked on. And then we had a Typekit subscription because we used Typekit before Adobe had bought it or Adobe had taken over or whatever for some of the other font licenses, but rather than go back and update one line of code in 12 other websites for old clients, we just signed up for the new Adobe one because that would make more sense. We used Free Agent for accounting. We used a lot of training packages like Team Treehouse and Laracast and stuff like that. We had several Linode server accounts, some of which that you know I we would keep going because we would spin up a server for a hack day to do one thing. And then the next day, be having to do something for a client and decide, well, let's just use that one that we started on yesterday. And then you start getting these Frankenstein monsters with like bits of things that you're never quite sure if you switched off what would happen. So, you know, all this stuff kept building up. MailChimp accounts that, again, rather than you would absorb one from one client and then actually just start up another one for another or then try and merge it because over the period that we worked, MailChimp then allowed you to merge accounts. So some of them got merged, but some of them didn't. We went on to like, we used a, a kind of company called Spring Loops to host our Git repos and do, you know, automatic deployments to servers for us. So when I totaled it all up, we got to the point where, you know, looking at kind of just like hardware and software and cloud storage and all that kind of stuff, we had five one terabyte hard drives for people to back up their, their machines with. We had six MacBooks, and this is, you know, once everyone had gone, everyone had left the building, this is what was left. Five one terabyte hard drives, just about full of stuff. Six MacBooks with, you know, 250 gigabyte drives on each of them, basically almost full. Google tablet, iPad, old phone. We had data. So the data on people's MacBooks uh, was replicated on the clouds. So, uh, we used Google Drive latterly for that for about 2015 to 2019. Before that, we were on Dropbox because, you know, it was free, in inverted commas. 
So at one point we switched because Google was free and Dropbox was going to start charging money. But the stuff on Dropbox is, is still there or was still there, lying there, doing nothing. And then again, on top of that, we used a kind of, at one point there was a cold storage provider that, that kind of cropped up called Big Stash. And, you know, they allowed you to take files. You know, you know I was conscious that we were maybe coming up to a ceiling of going to have to start paying money to start using the Google Drive that we were on. So I found this, I saw it in Product Hunt or something, this big stash company were going to give you five terabytes of storage for free. So I started creating an account on that and then archived older stuff, older files, and sent it all over the wire to this big stash company who kept it on cold storage, as they described it. And, you know, then after like 18 months, that stopped. You know, they decided that they couldn't, that they weren't viable as a business. So all that then had to be taken back out and found somewhere else to be put. All that kind of stuff goes on. And then with the, our kind of codes, you know, so those those kind of things were mainly project files and media files and Photoshop files and all that kind of stuff and things from clients that you'd store for reference. In terms of our codes, we used cloud Git repositories. And, you know, we were kind of, again, we tried to be really clever and stay on the kind of lower tiers of the payment plans on these things. You know, we got up to like over 100 repos, totaling about 100 gigabyte worth of storage. Some of these repos, even though they shouldn't have been, would contain media files and large images and stuff like that, even though we knew that that would be the wrong thing to do and we had a policy not to do it and everybody in the company bought into that idea, people would make mistakes and commit it to get repo and then, you know, there wouldn't be time to go through the process of extracting it and rebasing the Git repo or whatever. So it would just live in there. I know and that stuff all built up in each of those repos themselves, even though you would try to be smart and have kind of strategies for pruning back all the branches and all that kind of stuff, projects would have tens of branches of code going on within them. So going through that process and laying it all out in front of me, that was all the stuff we had. You then had to go through the process of deciding what was actually useful from it? What are we going to give to the clients to take forward into the future? Because for one, it's going to be a massive pain in the neck to try and wrap up what is almost, to split up almost eight terabytes of data to decide who gets what and then to try and get it to them. It's just a headache. And also it's useless. Like I said, we wanted to pride ourselves on giving them something useful, properly useful and not just dump a load of rubbish at their laps and walk away with no instructions as to how it would be useful. So we went through that process of kind of going into each project that was that we decided was going to go on and live into the future and whittled down all the stuff that we needed from that. We then went on and created new GitHub repos because we felt that would be the best thing for anyone else picking up in 2019. That would be the tool that they'd want to use. So we created what came down to basically 18 GitHub repos and we just put in you know, just the kind of either the main branch or the development branch for each of these projects. And then, you know, created a couple of documents that were maybe, you know, a couple of hundred K, 10 page documents, whatever, but just a couple hundred K of text to tell them all the stuff that they needed to know. And that meant that once we'd kind of gone through the process, the outcome of that was 18 GitHub repos that were a total size of about 850 megabytes. You know, so they, like, the repos had an average size of 50 megabytes or a median of 35 megabytes. So we basically went 
from five gigabytes of hard drive storage plus 1.5, sorry, five terabytes of hard drive storage, 1.5 terabytes of Apple Mac hard drive storage that was replicated in the cloud, another 0.1 terabyte of code repos. So call it eight terabytes of information that we had accrued over that time. And when we looked at it definitively and had no option to let it roll on to anything else, it boiled down to about 850 megabytes of real, useful, purposeful information. When you saw that, like, you know, when I kind of put these numbers together to talk to you about this, I had a sense it was a lot and I had a sense it was wasteful. But when you kind of look at the number and go, my goodness, you know, we were carrying all that around and it, it, it had no purpose. <laughs> it, was, it was literally a waste. Yeah, and it was, it was not just was it a waste, was it, but it was you're in this huge junkyard of, of cars uh, and you know there's a decent car that actually starts in there, but there's a hundred crocs that don't and, and, and you, you have to go around the junkyard trying to find that car that starts. So we did that, I look myself in the mirror, did we do it to the absolutely nth degree? Well, no, but we made a good shot at it. But, you know, when it came to the crunch, we didn't look under absolutely every stone because there's a tension. You know, there's always a tension between getting on. So how many years were you going? That was over That was over nine years. That was over nine years. And, and so you could probably do a rough calculation in how much an individual designer, programmer, person on average in an agency, how much data they're actually creating on a yearly basis and how much of it is is useful. Say if you average that out per in the very rough, roughest averages, how much was your average employee creating in data every year? Would you or is that is that difficult to, to do the calculations on? Well, I mean, this is very broad. So if, if we've kind of, you know, 100 gigabytes of rubbish per person per year. <laughs> and, and I love that analogy of the car, the car junkyard, because you have a sense of it, but but it's inside a lovely shiny MacBook, you know, with a, with a really neat wee black box that sits underneath it. So you, you know that when you open up the drive, you think, oh, God, I'm going to have to look for this again. And, you know, you, you try finding it, you know, by various names. And what did we call this one again? It's the shout that goes across the office and all that kind of stuff is there. But but then when you get up to go for a cup of tea or you're getting up to leave for the end of the day, you know, you look across the room and it's beautifully minimal with, you know, five lovely white desks with a kind of nice tabletop lamp, adjustable lamp, cheese plants in the corner. So this kind of thing you've been saying about how it's so easy to kid yourself. And I've done it, you know, and I've kidded myself because you're in this lovely room. You're, you're in this room with a lovely wooden floor, white walls, big windows, natural light, plants, some tastefully chosen books on the shelf. Yeah. And, and you know, and like we had this, the others would laugh at me. It was a kind of almost kind of Japanese factory culture where, the way that the office was, there were these shelves with a kind of, um, we, we went to Ikea and bought these kind of black boxes, canvas boxes. So we had our cleaner came in, you know, on a Friday night to clean the place for the for the next week. So we had this policy whereby everyone had to clear their desks on a Friday, 
put all their stuff in this wee black box and it went on the shelf so that the place was literally just clean, that the, the cleaner could, could just come in and go through the place without having to worry about touching computers or moving things around. So you, you kind of felt on a Friday night there was a ceremony, you know, around five o'clock yeah. where folk would all kind of go and pick up their boxes and they'd be chatting about what we're doing at the weekend. And you'd fill your box and you'd put it on the shelf. I know if I was last out walking up, you'd kind of look back across and go, we're neat and tidy and we're efficient and we're trying to do things in the right way. And But it's it's just a veneer. Underneath it, you know, there's a belching diesel engine just puffing out smoke. But sure, that's a classic tale that you've told. And as you said, you were as conscious as you could be. You weren't prolificate in, at least you didn't go out of your way to waste. You actually tried as much as you could in in, in this crazy speeded up world. But he, but you were still, on average, creating 100 gigabytes of junk each person a year in the process. And now that's a great story and a salutary tale. Maybe we'll just look a little bit at, at some other examples. One of the things that we're coming at now or we're seeing is the growth of web page size as a canary in the coal mine to some degree of saying that there's a lot of behaviour happening in digital design and development that is a kind of wasteful, that we see the, you know, the massive growth from maybe half a, a megabyte to four megabyte over 10 or 15 years. Anything where you saw in particular or that issues that you saw as particular drivers of that or that or the length of time, you know, you know, the growth in, say, JavaScript, JavaScript wouldn't necessarily weight-wise be huge in weight, but the, the processing that it causes or... What would you have seen? We know that the images are the drivers of the system. You know, any thinking around, you know, number one, you know, what what's driving that proliferation or that that growth? Or but how would we begin to come back from that? Or how do we not produce a hundred gig of waste a year? And how do we not create these web pages and websites that? for many people on ha- on basic phones are becoming practically unusable or are, are very, very, very time-consuming and difficult to use. So there's two parts to that. So the first part is kind of talking about page weight and, and the fact that, I mean, I've seen Dave Rupert talk about this, that we're burning, like they we're burning the, the capacity of the internet the bandwidth and the speeds that we're able to consume the internet are are getting faster every year, and yet we're burning it <laughs> faster than it's growing. You know, we're in deficit in terms of the average page weight. I think he had some stat, you know, that five years ago pages actually loaded faster because they were smaller, even though the connections were slower. Whereas now, even though the connections are faster, we're building pages that are bigger again. So we're actually worse off than we were five years ago, which blows your mind. But but I don't want to sound like old father time. I don't think this is something new. I think this is just the latest iteration of what I used to think of as the flash wars. So basically, there's a, I feel like I'm saying tension all the time, but there's this tension between people who, on the one hand, want to do exciting, visually grabbing things with internet 
web pages. And, you know, when we started up, we were kind of, people would ask us to build stuff in Flash and we would be saying to them, well, no, because that's just not accessible. You know, if somebody doesn't have Flash on the machine, they just won't be able to consume your website. Why don't we think about doing it this way? The whole progressive enhancement thing and all that stuff, like we'll build it just as, you know, basic HTML and CSS first. We'll have a functioning thing that works like that. And then if you've got the appetite and the money left, we can then put Flash on top of that so that the people, the subset of people who've got Flash can get the benefit of that. Because it's not like, we always felt like we were kind of ascetic monks, you know, and we, or people thought of us as that. <laughs> they were trying to say that we should wear hair shirts and whip ourselves. But it wasn't that. It was just that kind of, and I know that other people have spoken about this before, far better than I, like it's just about thinking about everyone who needs to see this what's the most important thing for the most important people. And that is basically just getting to see it as fast as possible, which then points towards using HTML and CSS, which are the kind of intrinsic technologies of, of the web. So I just feel that that, you know, that flash eventually lost the battle because I suppose Apple killed them off by not even allowing it on the iPhones. So that became an easy conversation to have with a client because you'd say, they'd say, oh, we wanted to do, you know, whiz bangs and flash around and turn upside down and have a soundtrack while it happens. And you, all you had to say to them was, well, then it won't work on an iPhone. And they would say, oh, well, we can't have that. Well, what do you suggest next? And then you were on to the next part of the conversation. And what's happened is that's gone away, but the urge for people, and, and I don't think it's a wholly bad urge. In fact, I don't think it's bad at all. The urge for humans to try and create things that look nice and are engaging, in the best case, is natural and, and good, but but it's a very easy way in to allow a lot of crap to come along with it and a lot of bad practice. So it kind of basically morphed from Flash and then has kind of rolled into, you know, single-page apps and the idea of using nodes to deliver one HTML document and then just, you know, start building up its own universe within that and then that's rolled on again into React, and, which I don't even pretend to understand in any great detail but i just kind of get the sense that you know that it's the same it's the same tension it's the same kind of battle playing out so i think that you know what we do about that is continue to find ways to without being preachy just explain to people the kind of the nature of you know the medium that is the web now it's getting more mature every year but it's still only 30 years old and it's kind of current without it being just, you know, text going back and forth. So it's still young if you compare it to books. So let's say there was a, an agency starting up or really reviewing its activities and saying we want to become a much more green agency or environmentally conscious. If there's one or two or three or four things that you would say to do to really become better at managing waste or, or become an agency that that doesn't have as big a, a, a pollution footprint on, on the world that actually they're saying want to really contribute to reducing the, the CO2 in the atmosphere, do our little bit. What would be the, the top three or whatever things that you would say that they should start doing? Number one. I think would be to create a culture of deleting things, which is just 
hardly anyone ever does, but make it a mantra. So if there's calendar notifications flying around about diary meetings, once you've read it, delete it. Don't just file it. If there's a tool that you use that will notify you when a server has come up or down, sure, there may be ones that you might want to keep or legally you may have to keep to keep an SLA alive, but probably 90% of them don't matter anymore once you've actually consumed the information that's within them. So I would kind of, you know, the first thing would be like just, and that's just talking about notifications. It's like if you, if you've used something, your default should be delete it unless there's a very good reason that you need to save it and put it somewhere. So that would be the one thing that I would do. The next thing is this kind of, I feel like this gets into preachy because it's not something that, well, no, I suppose I am, I am doing it in this life, would be like set limits. So, you know, like you do with everything else, measure it. So say to people, right, okay, we're going to, we're going to have 100 gigabytes of storage this year, or, you know, tighten it down, make it you've only got 50 gigabytes of storage this year so that people know when they're hitting their limits and don't just be like, okay, let's just buy another hard drive if you're hitting your limits and just move the junk onto the hard drive and carry on with something else. Have limits about how much storage, and I've just picked the number out of the sky, but have limits about what you're going to store so that you push it down to everyone who's working in the, in the agency, that they know that they've got their own budget, that their own kind of amount of storage that they've got, that they're not going to get anymore, so that they have to make the decisions about what they keep and what they don't keep. And make it like um, it's easy to say delete things. Like create the culture whereby, if you're going to be encouraging people to delete stuff, you need to train them how to do it, and be prepared to accept that sometimes a thing that you might have liked has gone and has been deleted. You know, you, you want to train people so that they make good judgments about what they keep and what they get rid of. But you want to be able to have an environment where you can support them in that so that if someone makes their own decision and deletes a file from six months ago that would have been better to keep, it's not the end of the world. And I say that because I've worked in places before where the kind of account handler who's kind of passing things back and forward between a client and a designer or a client and a developer, six months later, a problem arises and they're asked for their evidence. They have to go looking for emails and files and all that kind of stuff. Can I create a culture that is kind of confident enough in itself to say, well, we decided that we didn't need that? <laughs> you know, and if it turns out that if they did and something has to be done about that, then that's fine. But my bet and my sense is that for the most part, it's not that big a problem and it doesn't need to be that big a problem. And if you just say to someone, oh, sorry, it's gone, it's deleted, we don't have it anymore, that you might fear and create terrible reaction, but more times than not, there would be one. People wouldn't even notice. So those are the kind of the top two. And then the other one is kind of just being really careful. Like basically, it's a culture thing again. Um, it's about making everyone aware that we all have to think about this. And I, you know, I, I try and visualize ways of demonstrating, you know, how much a gigabyte of storage being sent by me transfer to someone is the same as trying to do burpees for 30 seconds or something like that. You know, I'm trying to find, I'm not landed on yet, but I've been trying to find a kind of good uh, comparator. It's like, imagine having to do burpees for five minutes 
that's how much energy that gets created when you or gets used when you try and send this file to someone. So try and kind of make everyone aware of what the real cost underneath all this stuff is. If you're interested in these sorts of ideas, please check out my book, Worldwide Waste, at jerrymcgovern.com. To hear other interesting podcasts, please visit thisishcd.com.